I was kind of feeling lonely because my friends were mostly Japanese. And although they were my friends, I didn't feel like we were that close and that connected. And this is just the way they deal with their friendships with people is just different. Especially with foreigners, I feel like they kind of used me a little bit as a uh, token. Because the Japanese friends I did have at that time liked reggae. So they were DJs or they had events and they would just take me with them. But I never was like that close to like just stop by at their house or they didn't come over my place. So I felt a little superficial. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while also exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman currently based in Spain. I am not only a podcaster, but I'm also a business strategist that helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their expertise into viable and sustainable online businesses, businesses that make them professionally fulfilled as well as financially abundant while they pursue thriving lives abroad. If you have not grabbed my Build a Business Abroad guide, please do. I also have my Moving Abroad with Intention guide. So if you're at the beginning of your move abroad or even if you're abroad, I think it's a great guide to help you really evaluate your reasons for going abroad and living abroad and ensuring that you are moving and making a decision that's truly in alignment with your vision of a life well lived. I just wanted to let you guys know that Flourish in the Foreign has been shortlisted for the International Women's Podcast Awards in the Moment of Touching Honesty category. I am so excited for this and I'm so proud and I appreciate all of your love and support because without it, being shortlisted for this type of award would not have happened. So thank you guys so much. Please send up your prayers and hold space that we win. Though being nominated is an honor in and of itself, but it'd be nice to win too. The winners are announced Thursday, September 23rd. So be sure to be signed up to the email list and following on social media because I will definitely post more information about the nomination and award. As y'all know, Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. And so I ask you all to please support this here podcast. You can support by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash Flourish Foreign. You can tip the podcast via Cash App at dollar sign Flourish Foreign. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Flourish Foreign. You can purchase a piece of production equipment via the podcast's Amazon wishlist, which you can find at the website flourishintheforeign.com slash support. And of course, please rate and review this here podcast. If you've been listening for a while and you really like the podcast, but you haven't written a review, Go ahead and remedy that today, please. Thank you very much. Continue to share this podcast with 
all of your friends, your family, blogs that you like, other podcasters, nominate the podcast for awards or grants or whatever. I just appreciate the support. So thank you all so, so much. All right, on to the next episode. Today's episode is with Ayana. I really enjoyed my talk with Ayana because she has lived in Japan for the past eight or nine years. And I just love talking to people who've lived abroad for a substantial amount of time because you get to really see the evolution of someone's experience and of who they are as well. I think that's so important because, you know, I was like this and maybe some of you were like this, like when you want to go abroad, you're like, yeah, it's so exciting and so sexy. And after, you know, the first year is kind of, it is an adjustment, but to know that people can get past the hard times because there's hard times regardless of where you live and you can still choose a country you get to still choose an experience it's always really fascinating to me i always like to hear these stories they are so important you know just because sometimes the stories as you've heard on this podcast are not always rosy doesn't mean that they are trying to deter you from anything it's just telling you about life and so I really appreciate Ayana's just transparency and her energy. But I'm going to let her tell you all about it. My name is Ayana and I am 34 and I am currently living in Osaka, Japan. My hometown is in New York State, Westchester County. And I left United States to live in Japan when I was 24. I had um, really good experience traveling to Grenada a lot with my family. My dad is from there. He moved to the United States when he was in his late teens to go to school and to try to make a living and also to help bring his family to the States as well. That was like the time when a lot of people did that from the small countries and the islands. And so growing up, my dad took the whole family to his, his home country many times to get to know the land, the food, and of course our family. And I think maybe I've been to Grenada six or seven times growing up. And the last time I went was when I was in college. I asked Ayana to tell me about her university experience and if she had the opportunity to study abroad. When I decided to go to school, I wanted to go to school for track and field. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get recruited like I thought I would in high school. So I chose to go to Seton Hall for two years and walked on the track team. After that experience, I, I thought I was going to get a full ride. I did get a partial scholarship my second year in Seton Hall, but because they said they weren't going to give me any more money, even though I was doing better than some of their full ride scholarship track members, I decided to move to North Carolina. I went to UNC at Charlotte and got a partial scholarship there. Now I finished my two years of college there. And I wanted to travel abroad even around that time to, to like see Japan because I was already interested in Japanese culture. I even tried to study Japanese in high school, but it was like, oh, this is too many alphabets at the time I said, because they have hiragana, katakana, and kanji, which is the Chinese characters. And when I saw how hard that was, and I was like, I have high school homework already. I don't want to <laughs> deal with that. I just decided not to study Japanese, but I was still very, very interested in Japanese culture 
regardless. But when I was in UNC Charlotte, I saw one of my friends studying Japanese because they had taken Japanese class. And one of our other friends, mutual friends, they went to Japan to study abroad. And unfortunately, even though I wanted to do that, I was on the track team and didn't want to skip a year of being on the team and maybe missing out on my scholarship. So I decided to maybe go another time. But I it wasn't like immediate in my brain. It was like, okay, someday I'll, I'll go to Japan to visit. So the seed of one day visiting Japan is firmly planted inside of Ayana's brain, inside of her heart. So I asked her to describe the turn of events, right? Her journey to actually moving to Japan. What started this entire process? So in 2010, the beginning of the year, January 1st, you know, as many people do New Year's resolutions, I had decided to study Japanese again, but for real this time. And because the reason why was I saw that my brother was learning Portuguese because he's interested in capoeira and loves Brazil. And he also had a roommate that was Brazilian too, and that's how he was learning. So I was really interested in that and decided on Japanese again because I knew I was interested in the culture and I had seen a lot of movies, Japanese and Chinese. But once I started actually learning Japanese, I realized, oh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is not Japanese at all. (laughs) So once I started studying Japanese, I got more and more interested. I was going to meetup.com to find meetup groups in New York. And then at that time I was living in Brooklyn. So I was living with my brother when I started studying Japanese. And when I went to the meetups in in like Manhattan, uh, I was meeting a lot of Japanese people and other like-minded people who liked the language and learning it. So it was a language exchange meetup. And then around maybe the sixth month, I had talked to my friend who had lived in Japan too. She lived in Japan maybe a year or two before I decided to study Japanese. And I had asked her about her experience. And she only was there for six months because she had to come back for a family emergency. But realizing that, you know, if she can do it, because she's such a homebody and like a family person and loves being with her family. She went, you know, there's no family in Japan. Uh, I was like, oh, I think if she can do it, I can do it maybe a little bit longer and lo and behold I'm here still it's been nine years <laughs> so I talked to my friend and then she also told me about uh, her boyfriend at the times experience so they both went on different tracks there is a working at public schools track and then there's one where you can work in a private English conversation school so after her boyfriend at the time told me about his experience working at a company that is an English conversation school I decided to do that thinking it would be easier to get into and lo and behold after another three months of thinking about it I found the company that he had worked online applied in August a week later I got an email saying that they would like to interview me in September so in September I did the group interview then a day later they said okay you passed the second interview is next week so I had to do one-on-one and do a demo lesson and then the following week I got the job <laughs> and they said, okay, the choices that you have for the cities you wanna be in in Japan are only one is available and that's Osaka. And that will be starting in, in March. So, okay, 
I don't have that much time to like prepare, but I could definitely like save up whatever I do have to leave the country in March. So it happened so quickly to me that I felt like <laughs> that even though it's like I just started to learn Japanese in 2010, a year and some change passes and here I am in Japan. It was just like, what? I'm always curious about family reaction because how supportive or not supportive your family is before you go abroad, let alone while you're actually living abroad, can really take a tough toll on all of us. So I asked Diana how her family reacted to the news of her moving to Japan. My dad was happy for me because he saw that I was trying something different and he saw that I applied myself and I got a job in another country but I don't think he was expecting me to stay so long I think he was thinking that I would just be there for one one year two years max and then come back my brother was excited for me because he's the one that kind of put me on in a lot of anime Growing up, I started watching uh, Sailor Moon, but he was watching like Dragon Ball Z. So I was watching that with him. We still watch anime together whenever I do go back. So that's that's just our bonding thing. And he has visited me here too, twice. But yeah, my family, I think we're just very proud and there was no pushback. I always ask my guests about the day they left and the day they arrived in their new country. Probably because for me, it's such a vivid memory. And also, if you've been listening to the podcast, there have been some wild, wild stories about day of departure. And so I was curious to know for Ayana, what was it like emotionally leaving New York and arriving in Japan? Well, I know the night before I went, like I had dinner with my dad and he was very somber and sad to see me go because I'm going to be so far and he would always say like you're going to a strange land but the day I left it was just you know I was excited there was actually problems with the the plane from Canada so I went from New York to Canada and Canada to Osaka we were waiting on the tarmac for a while and then realizing that there was issues with the plane so I was a bit late for my landing time and because I applied for this job that in Japan they meet me when I arrive and it's not just me it's like other people that they're meeting together it was my training team because my my flight was delayed they picked me up later of course and I missed seeing my training partners at the airport it was really surreal and I was I felt like because I was 24 at the time I felt very just I don't know just just everything was just new so I didn't really know what to think but I just remember the smell of Osaka when I first came and I would never forget that it was it was nice though it was a nice memory and so I had to ask what does Osaka smell like it is the food it had to be like something with the food like I haven't smelled it that often or like and when I go to that area, I kind of have that memory, that flash of memory. But it, yeah, it was just, I think this, maybe the soy sauce or, well, because in Osaka, they like fried food. So it was probably the takoyaki, which is the fried, fried balls filled with octopus inside. So <laughs> they have this brown sauce and bonito flakes on it. And 
I don't know. I think maybe that's what I smelled or something, or I don't know. It was just a nice memory, and I will never forget that. I asked Ayana to describe her first year in Osaka. What was it like? The ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the ugly. My first year was very fun, I think. The job itself was a bit stressful in the very beginning because it was my first time teaching. I never taught before. And then I know during training, I had a panic attack when I had real students come for my first trial lesson <laughs> because it's like, oh, I've never taught like Japanese people English and they're probably not going to understand me. My predecessor, who I replaced at my school, said like, oh, you need to slow down how you speak. So it was a little bit stressful, too, because the manager changed in the middle of the year and she wasn't that friendly. And she also tried to overwork me. I don't know. I guess that's the thing that some managers do here. And it's it's been a problem that I've had. We're just working in Japan in companies. So other than the job itself, I had made good friends with one of my co-trainees. And one of the other co-trainees I had, I didn't really like, but he lived in the same building as me. It was really like coincidental. We ended up being okay, not like friends, but good acquaintances. He had lived here in Japan before, maybe a few years before I was there in 2011. So he kind of knew Japanese a bit. He knew to like go to bars and talk to the locals and just have a good time. Although I didn't hang out with him like that, he did take me to one of the local bars in our neighborhood. And then I also hung out with the other girl, but she lived three hours away. So it would be maybe like a once a month kind of thing. But she also left early because she was a real teacher in New Zealand. But we still kind of talk sometimes here and there and she still teaches and comes to Japan with her students. But yeah, I felt like my first year was like a vacation <laughs> a little bit. I was working, but I was like, all right, I need to travel. I did the most traveling around the prefecture, not just the prefecture, but also neighboring prefectures called the Kansai area that I ever did in that year. After that, I didn't travel that much in Japan. I've never been to Japan, but through this podcast, I've had the ability to interview guests who have lived in Japan and talk to them about the work culture of Japan. I also feel like Japanese work culture is something that is infamous. So I asked Ayana to describe Japanese work culture and her experience within Japanese work culture. The differences are that Japan's work culture is still very stiff, where they try to follow a lot of their old time I don't know when they were the booming era. I believe that was in the 80s. And just also some of their samurai culture is still like stuck in their work culture where the boss sits overseeing everybody. Every morning there is like a chode, which is like a, a morning meeting where you just recite like the company's, I don't know, it could, it depends on the company, but could, they might have some sayings that they want to repeat. And then that's it. Give a little bit of a report of, of something from yesterday is supposed to be very short sometimes it's long but it also depends on the company for me i mainly worked in um a kaiwas which is the english conversation school so i didn't have to deal with that but once i did work two years in one company i had to be in the office that's what i experienced and it's very stuffy dusty in there everyone has to wear a suit 
they just like to try to follow all the rules and little things that you might want to do differently because like you think it works better like no you have to wait and ask like this boss you can't you can't just go straight to the person who deals with it directly so there's just things like that and so some of you may be curious as to how ayana is able to work in japan and so i asked her how she initially secured her japanese work visa so the first company i worked for sponsored me so once i got that uh job they got the coe which is the certificate of I forget what it was. I forgot what the E is. But I needed to get the COE and then I could get my visa. And that took some time. I think it took a good month or so to process. But it was fairly simple and I had to just go to the consulate for it. And then that visa that I got first is just a working visa. But the official name is like engineering slash humanities slash something else but it's very broad broad visa meaning i could do many things in that realm but i just couldn't really teach in a public school if i wanted to teach in a public school that visa would uh, would turn into a teacher visa even though i was still teaching it's it's just different because it was a public school and i got a three-year visa and then i've only had three-year visas three times so i i did renew my visa in march this year and when I go to immigration, that's where I get the paperwork, fill it out, get all the paperwork from my jobs, showing how much I make, and then send it back to immigrations with a passport size photo and attach it. And then they process it. It takes like two to four weeks to process. And again, they just gave me another three-year visa, same visa. So Ayana was recruited and hired on by an English conversation company. And so I asked her to tell us more about that company and also what a typical work schedule looked like for her. I don't want to disclose that. I don't want to say that name because even though they're a good company, I still like to complain about them once in a while and I don't want them to know. <laughs> a hint is, is one of the top three conversation schools in Japan. And that's all I'll say. The schedule would start at the time I was there, like around 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. And then it would end at night from Tuesday to Saturday. And I would teach about maybe max six classes. But six is really a lot. And that's like when I was saying to my manager that this is too much and you're over trying to overwork me. I only, I only lasted there for two and a half years. So they sponsored me as in, like, yeah, they allowed me to get my visa because I work for them, the working visa. And the pay was about, or it was very close to like $3,000 a month. And you can only get paid once a month in Japan. And the health insurance was provided. They also subsidized my rent. I They also found the apartment for me when I moved. So that was good. But after I left the company, I had to leave out of that apartment and then search for my own, which was an experience. I asked Ayana to share some resources for those of you who may be interested in working in Japan. You can try gaijinpot.com. A lot of people like to start there. They have a few tabs where it's like, it says work, study, and maybe there's classifieds. Yeah, there's a couple of 
of tabs where you can start finding information about Japan there and the different areas and also like where to find work and where to study. I wanted to know what it was like trying to find an apartment in Osaka. And so I asked Ayana to share her experience finding an apartment. It could be very daunting, especially if you find an apartment that's not helped by an English speaker, like to the real estate agents. So you have to go to a specific place to find an apartment. Like I remember in the States, like you could go to an apartment building and I guess talk to the manager or whoever in the front about renting an apartment there. But in Japan, you have to go to a real estate agent and there's a lot, there's many different kinds, but they all share basically the same database. The only difference is like maybe their fee when they find a place for you. And so the first time I looked for an apartment, I went with my Japanese coworker to help me communicate with what I wanted. And they tell me like, okay, what area do you want? How much you want to spend? How many rooms you want? Looking for apartments too, like the way they code everything, like for example, a 1K is one room with kitchen. One LDK is one room living, dining, kitchen, and stuff like that. And a lot of times too, Japanese landlords, if they find out that you are a foreigner, they'll probably just say no. I've gotten denied just because I've been a foreigner before. And I mean, fortunately, unfortunately that I didn't get that apartment, but fortunately I found a better apartner, apartment nearby anyway. But it, I just, that was my first experience of discrimination in Japan. And I knew it wasn't because I was black. It was just mainly foreigner equals no. Even though I found out like recently that it's illegal to do that. So there's that. The second time I moved, because I moved, I moved one, two times after, you know, my first arrival, I went to a English, yeah, English real estate agent. But they also do deal with Japanese tenants and stuff like that. And they found a building, not a building, they found a site that I could use to find like subsidized rent from the government. And I have a three, three DK, so a three room dining kitchen place. Uh, and that, and surprisingly, they had this deal, like if you're under 35 years old, you can get this three room apartment for a lot less. So my apartment was like supposed to be 800 something dollars and now it's like 600. So I was able to have that, you know, lower rent since I've been there and I've been there for four years now. So it was like only until I'm <laughs> 35. <laughs> so it's best to like find places where they have English support or if you have a friend, coworker, family member that's Japanese to help you find these places because it's really difficult and daunting, a lot of paperwork and a lot of money. You need to have at least $2,000 to just move house. And then that includes like the fee, the first rent to, or first two months rent. Maybe they have this thing called key money, which is like you don't get back and your deposit, which you can get back. Key money is some old thing that they've done like since like pre-war where it's like gift money or key money. That's what key, key money is to assure that the people who own the place get money. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. They still do this. But with the English support real estate, they... 
they kind of find places where you don't need to key money. So there are houses or apartments where you can have zero key money, but it's really hard to find a, a place too for like pets. So yeah, finding an apartment in Japan can be very frustrating. I asked Ayana to describe the differences in quality of life between Osaka and Brooklyn, where she was living before, but also the cost of living between Brooklyn and Osaka. My quality of life is definitely more comfortable. When I was living in Brooklyn, you know, just finding jobs that pay the high rent was difficult. Eating healthy was difficult for me. Everything's expensive in New York. Uh, I know Japan is considerably expensive, but Osaka compared to other cities is not as expensive. And, you know, usually the jobs fit the, the, the economy there. And my day to day, I can ride my bike everywhere and feel safe. I could not do that. I could not feel safe in New York. I have a lot of friends here that are really good friends, like close knit friends. I say a lot, but it's not, it's not too many. It's just that I have more than I, I had in New York. And they also helped me with like my events. So we had, we have events that we organize here. And one event like recently is called a rollout in Osaka. So we go out to the park and just skate or ride our bicycles in a route. And we just try to do things that are healthy for us and also like sociable. I did DJ events. Like I also started learning how to DJ and then we just played music that was better than the clubs because the clubs in in Japan are trash. <laughs> so I feel like my, you know, day-to-day -day life is a lot more freeing and comfortable than it was when I was in New York. I asked Ayana what it has been like learning Japanese in Japan. And if at this point she feels as if she's fluent in Japanese. I feel like I'm not fluent still and I'm I am comfortable enough to have short conversations or very basic ones. So I had been an avid studier for five years straight straight and I believe I just burnt out. I was just like, I am trying so hard yet I'm not going getting anywhere. But I think in retrospect, I did get far, especially with my listening. My listening skills are still very good. And my fluency, like the way I speak, is smoother than before. But because I kind of stopped studying, there's a lot of words, there's still a lot of bad grammar that I, I say. But it's still easy to understand. Japanese people tell me it's I'm my speaking is very easy to understand. So I just feel like I talk like a child. <laughs> but um, I'm okay with it. I'm always curious to know at what point my guests feel settled in a country. And so I asked Ayana, at what point or what was the circumstance that made her feel settled in Osaka? I think it was uh, the first year that my brother visited me and that was after my third or fourth year here. A lot of my years are kind of mixed in together. So, but I do remember it was like around then and my brother was like seeing how well I was adjusting to everything and just happy to see that I made a lot of friends. I made a lot of Japanese friends. He had met them too. The third year, I was actually struggling with, after my brother left, I actually was struggling with homesickness because even though I visit, I visit back home once a year, I was kind of feeling lonely because my friends were mostly Japanese. And although they were my friends, I didn't feel like we were that close and that connected. And this is just the way they deal with their friendships with people is just different, especially with foreigners. I feel like they kind of, 
used me a little bit as a uh, token because the Japanese friends I did have at that time liked reggae so they were DJs or they had events and they would just take me with them but I never was like that close to like just stop by at their house or they didn't come over my place so I felt a little superficial so I was like upset about it I was talking to my dad my dad's like why don't you just come back I'm like no because I feel like I failed like I don't want to give up and regret it I just felt like I didn't find my place yet here in Japan. So I just wanted to keep trying. So that's why I was like, all right, yeah, I'm going to just keep at it and live here until that happens and find what I want to really do. And then around the sixth year, fifth year or sixth year, I think I had started doing my, my own podcast called Curly and Kansai. And there are times where me and my co-host would just have a rant section about Japan and we were like just getting annoyed with a lot of little things mainly that annoyed us about living here as a foreigner because there's just little things that a lot of people commonly deal with especially you know being you know not white <laughs> and I was like all right I'm over it I do want to like go back eventually but I think what also keeps me here is that politically what's going on in the states usually just turns me off and then I have issues with loan still and my credit score score is pretty bad I feel if I go back there's just a lot of things that kind of turn me off and I don't want to deal with it like a hundred percent if I moved back hey I hope that you are enjoying this episode of flourish in the foreign and if you are please consider supporting the podcast by either becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash flourishforeign, tipping the podcast via cash app at dollar sign flourishforeign, buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign, or purchasing a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wishlist at flourishintheforeign.com slash support. I also want to invite you all to check out the plethora of resources that I've compiled for you all at the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. There you will find a book list to help you get, stay, and thrive abroad, as well as the build a business abroad guide and moving abroad with intention guide. All right. Let's continue the show. I asked Ayana to describe to me her experience as a black woman in Japan. I think like as a black woman in Japan, there are little things that we deal with more than or differently than other foreigners. But in general, I felt that my experience and other foreigners are very similar but things that are different can be like how Japanese approach you, especially like strangers or like if someone's trying to pick you up, it could be kind of like more disgusting, I would say. <laughs> like some some guys try to proposition my my friends like right next to me, who's another black woman. And I thought that was disgusting. Uh, but my first year here, I just didn't really think much of it. I just probably because I grew up in a white neighborhood. So I was already like the only or very few black person people around. So it, I kind of felt like, oh, I'm back to doing this again. I felt more 
culture shock when I moved to a bigger town in New York, in Westchester County, with more black people than I did in Japan. So probably my second or third year, I felt a little bit more aware of like me being black in Japan. So I think that kind of clouded my judgment a little bit, thinking that every negative interaction was because I was black. But after a while, I was like, all right, maybe that's not because I'm black, maybe because it's just I'm a foreigner. But after making more black friends in Japan, I realized, okay, all right, this is a little bit more for black people. And then this is for other non-black foreigners in Japan. The whole touching of hair is a thing still. I didn't actually get my hair touched that much in the States growing up, but I got my hair full on grabbed. When I had dreadlocks, an old lady just came up from behind me and started grabbing my hair in a friendly way. She was just curious, but I was just like, this is not what you do. What what are you doing? They don't do that to white people. I asked Ayana how she got her beauty products, you know, the lotions, the hair oils, things like that, how she secured those in Japan. So there's a website called iHerb.com. They have for Japan as well. So I can get some hair products or beauty products there, but there are also a lot of ladies in this group on Facebook called Black Women in Japan where when people ask, there are some people who sell. I don't really know where they get it, but they have the product, so they sell it to you know other black women in Japan. So there are venues to get, like online, mostly. Like you can't just buy it in the store. I was curious to know if there was a vibrant black community in Japan, particularly in Osaka. The black community I feel is pretty small. <laughs> in Osaka but I feel like we get most of us get along and a lot of foreigners in general in Osaka are, are nicer I feel when I've been to Tokyo there is a black community there and I do have friends in that but there's just so many foreigners in Tokyo that there's a lot of cliques and that's fine and all but the cliques that clash with each other while the the small groups or cliques in Osaka they are more cordial with each other I feel that's the vibes I get my group called Black Creatives Japan started at the end of 2015 with events that has helped uh, other people know that we exist especially in Osaka and I decided to like make an event called Showcase and Chill which was a talent show of all the members not all but the members in Kansai who are interested in showcasing their artwork and their their skills like singing or playing a guitar or acting or or live painting anything like that that was that that event and it was only the members of BCJ who can be the talent the you know community any everybody in the community can come to see it and maybe buy some art as well and since i started that you know people were like i really love this event please do this more so then I think started growing a little bit more and more on Facebook because I also would post videos, uh, post the event flyers on uh, social media and people would um, find out about it too through maybe like me talking about it on my podcast or like other people talking about it. It's just like it was just getting a little bit bigger and bigger online. And it's mainly active in my area in Kansai in Osaka because this is where I, I reside I know that some people in Tokyo are like, oh, when is this event going to be in Tokyo? And I say, you can make it. If you want it to be a BCJ 
held event. You just have to talk to me about it because that's my logo. That's my brand. But it's just like these events can happen over where you are. You just have to make it happen. And it seems like a lot of people don't really want to be the leader of an or like organizing an event, but they do see that the group online is still beneficial regardless if there's an event in their area or not. Dating abroad. Always. Oh, I bring it to you. You guys want to know? I always bring it to you. And so I asked Ayana about her experience dating in Japan. My very first three years, I did not date. I just had crushes on friends who were Japanese and it went nowhere. I didn't really start actually having like a boyfriend until end of 2016 or middle of 2016. And that lasted only five months. And I, I met him through a, an event when me and my friends went to like the southern part of Osaka for a reggae event. And that what ended up being like just a hookup. And then he just like, hey, let's date. I want you to be my girlfriend. It wasn't like, let's just get to know each other before we make it official. It was just like, all right, we hook up. Now you're my girlfriend. I was like, okay. And at the time, I was going through a rough, rough patch with work because I had changed my job to be a preschool teacher and I was going through drama with the mothers and the staff and the boss ended up saying I needed to leave so I basically lost my job and he came in like at the time where I was like oh I'm lonely and I've wanted a boyfriend for a while and he asked me and he's cute so why not so I tried it it only lasted five months because he just was more conservative than I thought and then he thought I was more like wild <laughs> which I don't think so it's just that I, I was getting drunk a lot because he had events that I felt were kind of boring so I would drink so I can start feeling more comfortable talking in Japanese with people but then there are times where I just go to sleep or like fall asleep I one time fell asleep in front of two vending machines in an empty parking lot that was right next to the place that we were at but like because it's japan i was just like i'm fine here <laughs> he he like found me and did not like that so he broke up with me a week after <laughs> and then after that relationship i went on one of the dating apps before tinder i believe it was called badoo and it wasn't even an app i think it was just a website and i found a nigerian man that's like in a prefecture that's like an hour away from me and we started like dating but we didn't actually make anything official and that was like just one year or so but we're still friends but it's just like yeah that didn't go anywhere and I really liked him so I was just like ah oh, it's so hard dating here and trying to find like just like-minded people so I, after the Japanese guy I said no more to Japanese men because of the culture clash and then I just found it really difficult still to find other foreigners to date. Uh, eventually did find somebody that's in my group called Black Radio Japan, who was just at first just wanted my help for his, his business that he was trying to start, a small thing with music. But yeah, that didn't go well either, even though that was a year because there was just a lot of there was a lot of clashing in that as well. And he was from the UK. So I was just like, I'm open to like dating all kinds of people. 
but I just didn't want to date any Japanese people after the first time. I think I've changed my mind a little bit now though. Ayana had an amazing podcast that unfortunately has ended, but you can still listen to the episodes across all platforms called Curly in Kansai. And so I asked her to talk about the origin story of Curly in Kansai and what they talk about. I've been doing Curly in Kansai for now three years. I started it with my friend, but prior to that, maybe in 2014, yeah, we were trying to make a series on YouTube because I had started doing YouTube, uh, like another channel for Japan when I got here, but I didn't really upload that much. So I was trying to do a series called Black Faces in Japanese Places. That didn't really go well because, you know, being on camera and doing the talks and editing, it was just, it was tedious for me. Then I decided, oh, I love podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. It was just a year I was listening to so many podcasts. It's like, why don't I just make one? After a year of listening to podcasts, I was like, all right, I think I should make that instead of videos because I, I don't have to deal with the videos. Unfortunately, we started doing videos as well, too. Probably the third episode in, I was like, all right, I'm going to put it on my YouTube channel because I have a lot of followers or subscribers on there right now already. So if we want to get a fan base, I'll just post it on there. And I decided to call it Curly and Kansai because I didn't want it to be like black in, black in Japan or black in Kansai. I just felt like it was just too direct and not that creative. So I was like, oh, we're both curly heads. And I know like anybody can have curly hair, but it's like, I don't want to put kinky in Kansai because <laughs> although that's a play on words, there is an area called kinky in in Japan, K-I-N-K-I, I didn't want it to be like a sexual thing. So I was like, all right, curly, curly in Kansai. I like the alliteration. It's still like being black in Japan and just sharing our experience in Japan as being black women, but it's not too direct of like black in Japan. <laughs> she and her co-host sometimes discuss annoying things in Japan. And so I had to ask her, what are some of the things that annoy you the most about living in Japan? Well, some of the things that were annoying is a lot of the bureaucracy in Japan, dealing with that and microaggressions that we also deal with. So one example is like going to apply for a credit card or just apply for something that's supposed to be simple. It requires a lot of paperwork. A lot of things in Japan is not digital, even though many people abroad outside of Japan feel that, oh, you know, Japan has all these futuristic things, so they should have all these things done, like credit cards. They didn't really have credit cards, not, not credit cards. They didn't have debit cards for the longest time. They started doing debit like maybe two years ago or three years ago. And I was just like, why don't they have debit cards? Like, they just don't know the concept of debit. And yeah, so just trying to apply for simple things or trying to do things online. Their websites are garbage, like it's very cluttered, but they've started a slightly getting better. But like doing anything with the government is just tedious and you need a hanko. A hanko is a stamp instead of signing. And if you want to like sign something, it has to be exactly the same way you signed it before. And I'm like, that's not how signatures work because they're so used to honkos or the stamps. And I was just like, oh, these things are so annoying. So stuff like that is like what we would complain about. And the microaggressions would be just what a lot of foreigners in general deal with is like the language thing. So I know when people go to another country, they learn the language and they're able to use that language well. Well, if you are an 
an, a foreigner and especially a Western foreigner, quote unquote, Japanese people just talk to you in English. So if you're a very beginner and you're like self-studying, it's hard to like get into conversation with a Japanese person because they want to practice their English with you. And it's like, I already work as an English teacher, so I don't really want to teach you English. I'm here to try to also learn Japanese. So a lot of people go through the route of coming to Japan as an English teacher. And I guess Japanese people, a lot of Japanese people might feel like, oh, okay, they speak English. So I'm going to you know, practice my English that I learned since middle school <laughs> or junior high school that I don't practice anymore now. But because you're a foreigner, I want to say something in English. So there's just like little things like that. I had heard actually from one of their episodes about the difficulty of bringing some pharmaceutical drugs into Japan. I think particularly it was like allergy medicine, like Claritin, that she just couldn't bring into the country. And so I know I would find that very annoying because it seems as if outside of the U.S., more countries are more cautious about the strength of over-the-counter pharmaceuticals and things like that. And therefore, they are weaker and I live in Spain and, you know, when the once a year I get a cold or something and I just want the DayQuil, the NyQuil, and they don't have anything comparable, which is why I bring my own. So not being able to bring in my Claritin or anything like that would be would be a problem. Claritin is, I believe, illegal or whatever is inside the drugs for Claritin is illegal in Japan. But what is legal over the counter in Japan is Rufinol for sleeping. Like, if you have uh, sleeping problems, you can get that. Or it's maybe not over-the-counter, but it's definitely legal still, while it's illegal in the United States, I believe. I don't think people roofie people in Japan. I think they just generally use it for a sleeping drug. Yeah, they don't have the same kind of history as uh, the U.S. does with Rufinol. But it's still possible to do it. Like, I, I believe that it has, there has been cases. So, on the topic of health... I asked Ayana to describe the Japanese healthcare system and describe any experiences she has had with the healthcare system. One thing that's very different culturally is that uh, Japanese people go to the hospital for like anything. So when, you know, someone says, oh yeah, I went to the hospital, like Americans, if they don't know, they're like, oh, are you okay? Like what happened? They're like, oh no, I just want to get some allergy medicine. Like <laughs> you just, you know, go to the hospital for like any little thing. And I never really went to the hospital like that. I did once when I got sick, got the uh, really bad fever. I think I did get the flu. But other than that, I don't, I don't think the healthcare system is that great, although everybody has national health insurance. It's universal health care. It's a little bit cheaper, but the doctors aren't that great. And the doctors aren't really that great in diagnosing you. And especially during the winter time, when everybody gets the flu, they don't really check. A lot of doctors don't really check. They're just like, okay, what's your symptoms? Okay, here's some medicine, and that's it. They don't really check your throat and like that. And then during this pandemic, the coronavirus, in the very beginning, they did not take in anybody who had any symptoms because they're like, if we check you and you're positive, you might just spread it everywhere or uh, we have to admit you and then you'll spread it in the hospital. So they didn't want anybody to come to the hospital. And although the health insurance is uh, universal, the way you pay health insurance here is based on your last year's income. 
So if you don't have health insurance from a company and you just use the government's national health insurance, they determine the price from how much you get paid from work. And I've had issues with actually national health care here for a good year and a half now. It's settled, but at one point I was supposed to owe $3,000, but then ended up being 300 I asked Diana if she felt that American politics still affects her while living in Japan. Yeah, they do. And then this year we had also made a march in Osaka for the BLM movement. So all the things that's been going on in the States, especially with the shootings, affected me and my friends and we all had decided like we want to show solidarity we feel like also Japanese people should know that you know just because you know we're foreigners and we have you know black issues in the states we also have issues in Japan for being black so we should also bring awareness to Japanese people that this happens around the world and some things also happen happen in Japan too, like with discrimination and microaggression and all the things, especially to Japanese mixed kids who are mixed with black. So I don't know how many of you keep up with international crimes and politics, but when I was recording with Ayanas many, many months ago, the story of Carlos Ghosn, who was the ex-Nissan boss, was like everywhere. So the story is Carlos Ghosn had done some work in, with Renault, which is a French car brand, got placed in Nissan in Japan to help them turn it around. And basically what happened is that he got accused of misappropriating funds. So he was first arrested in Tokyo in 2018 on allegations of underreporting his salary and gross misuse of company assets. He was dismissed and there were a bunch of investigations going on about what else was happening, what else he might have been involved with. He was granted bail in March of 2019, but then he was rearrested in Tokyo in April over some new charges about misappropriation of Nissan funds. And so he was released again on bail. And during his time on bail, there were even more accusations and more charges being filed against him. And he decided, which was the biggest shock for anyone who was like watching this uh, case, like I was, like the nerd that I am, I was definitely really tuned into this. He fled from Japan to Lebanon via Turkey. And he did it in such like a James Bond way, right? He was hidden in a musical instrument box. He went but via private jet. He had help by the Turkish authorities. I mean, he's basically being sheltered by the Lebanese authorities, even though there's an Interpol red notice issued out for him. And it was just so fascinating to me. One, because it brought up a lot of questions about the Japanese justice system. And also, if you listen to Carlos Ghosn's version of the story, he was completely being railroaded and all the charges were made up in some kind of, I don't know, revenge kind of scheme that the bosses of Nissan were involved with and they got the government and the justice system in Japan involved with. It is fascinating. If you haven't heard about this story, Google it, look it up. I think it's really interesting. 
And so I asked Ayana about her take on the Carlos Ghosn story, but also her impressions about the Japanese justice system. I think their Japanese criminal justice system is just terrible, especially to foreigners. It's very unfair. I have a few friends that have dealt with the police and have been detained. And there's another mutual that I know that's detained now for just like punching a cop because they're a drunk. They can just take you and you can't communicate with anybody. I don't know when they allow you to communicate, but you could pretty much, it's it feels like you're kidnapped. Like if you do something bad, they just detain you and you have no way of contacting people that you're detained. So you can lose your job, you could lose everything. And it just, it surprises me. So I think with um, Carlos, he didn't want to go through that system because he knows that they're not going to be fair. When you are detained too, they kind of just try to pressure you to say you're guilty. And even if you're, if you say that, that doesn't mean you can get out. <laughs> they just don't want to solve anything. Their conviction rates are high because they basically try to like force you to say that you're guilty. I had a friend who got arrested because somebody got into a fight and he was trying to break it up and they were trying to like get him to confess that he was in the fight because it was Japanese guys that were like, oh, we're going to call the police on you because they kind of know that we have like hardly any rights when it comes to that. Like if you hit a Japanese person or let's say like I try to save someone, they can still come and try to sue me or like they take me away because they think that I'm in the wrong (laughs) or something. It's just ridiculous. And then the treatment is just terrible. And I think with Carlos too is because like he would just be waiting and they'll just keep trying to tell him to say that he's guilty. Well, from what I read from his story was he was just using the money like all other people in Japan use their money. So whatever was happening in the company and whoever didn't like it wanted to make him like the example of like whatever he's doing is wrong. But I don't feel like he was guilty of anything. He was just using using the money as like how other uh, the CEOs were using their money. I asked Ayana to share some advice with all of you who may be interested in moving to Japan or specifically Osaka. Just definitely do a lot of research. I always suggest that that there are a lot of people now who have YouTube videos uh, or Instagram accounts where they show their experience living in Japan. So if you are also a fellow black person trying to live here in Japan, just follow or just look at those videos but like even though you might hear their experience don't take it a hundred percent that doesn't mean you'll also experience those things because it also depends like where you are who you're with what what job you have osaka is really great i always recommend osaka because they seem a little bit more friendlier to foreigners in general and there's not that many foreigners here too so you can probably make friends with Japanese more if you are you know adventurous and able to just put yourself out there then you will find more Japanese friends to speak Japanese with so also study the language prior to coming or even if you haven't I recommend studying while you're there and don't put yourself in a bubble where then you can't or you lose motivation to learn Japanese like even though I lost motivation to study I still am interested and when I do speak to interesting Japanese people 
I still learn Japanese that way too. So it's not like I've given up the language totally. I can also still communicate with them. So I just find it important to be able to learn the language to live here, even if Japanese people want to practice English with you. I asked Ayana to describe her definition of wellness and if living in Japan for this many years has changed that definition, that concept, and even her practice of wellness. And this is what she said. So for me, I think it's also just due to my personality. My wellness is friends, friendship that can also be turned into family. And so just having a safe space where people can just talk freely, be themselves, and not have to worry about following certain rules or customs in the country <laughs> or wherever they are, just relax. And music. Music is also a big part of that for me and exercising. And one of that is like for me biking. I just got a new bike, so I like to bike around the city and just seeing new sites that I haven't seen before. Thank you so much, Ayana, for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. And if you want to keep up with Ayana, you can via social media. You can find me on Instagram, Yana underscore YZ and Twitter. Those are the same. And then if you look up my podcast called Curly with a K in Kansai, you can find it on YouTube and all other podcasting clients. Thank you again, Ayana. And if you want to learn more about Ayana's story, you can by checking out her show notes on the website flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash Ayana. To celebrate the one year anniversary of Flourish in the Foreign, I'm going to give a 50% off discount to everyone who books a session with me. The discount code is FIF, Flourish in the Foreign, 50, capital F, capital I, capital F, 50. These one hour sessions are not recorded. You will be given a questionnaire and you get to pick my brain and we get to chat for one hour about your moving abroad strategy. The discount code is FIF50. Make sure you go ahead and book that in today. If you are interested in launching your own podcast, I highly recommend joining WOC Podcasters Insiders Membership. I've been a member of this membership for a while now, and honestly, I feel that the reason the podcast has done so well and the reason the podcast is continuing to grow and take on even more exciting opportunities is because of the support and the great advice that I get from WOC Insiders. So if you're wanting to launch your podcast or just get more serious about your podcast or perhaps monetize your podcast definitely join the woc podcasters insiders membership today and you can do so via the link in the description of this episode or on the website flourishintheforeign.com resources it's a great way for you to support this here podcast at no additional cost to you if you have not followed the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram, what are you doing? There's a lot of great content on both platforms. 
on Instagram. I have done many, many, many IG lives, some solo and some with past guests that are jam-packed with amazing gems on moving and living abroad. And on YouTube, I really have a lot of great conversations with some past guests about what they're up to now and how living abroad really has changed their lives. So check it out, youtube.com slash flourish in the foreign and instagram.com slash flourish foreign. As always, thanks so much to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. If you're in need of music for your next creative endeavor, he is definitely your guy. You can find all of his information in the show notes of this episode. And please remember that it's not about getting abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And so you know at the core of yourself that you have something worthy of air, worthy of attention, worthy of light and energy. And yet you decide to keep it buried. You decide to keep it on the low. You decide to not breathe life into it because you're not ready. But you're willing to breathe life into a lot of petty nonsense and a lot of other ridiculous things. And you know what they are. Whether it be wasting your time doing X, Y, Z. But you know what it is. Instead of betting on yourself, you decide to waste time. Because that's what you're doing. And that's a problem. Life is passing you by. You're going through the motions in life.